So turn to 1 Samuel 21 in your Bibles. Yes, we're still in our series in the Psalms, so be ready to jump over to Psalm 34. So get a spot in 1 Samuel 21 and then a spot in in, uh, Psalm 34. We need to get the background to Psalm 34 so it will click for us. Uh, We need to get the background of what is happening in David's life that caused him to write this psalm. And we're going to need to split Psalm 34 uh, in half into two sermons, as well as Psalm 35 and Psalm 37 when we get to those. So they're just too long to cover uh, in one sermon. So that's where we're headed. But for now, 1 Samuel 21. And since we're just jumping into 1 Samuel 21 and we don't know what's going on, let me tell you what's been going on in David's world. David is on the run from King Saul. He's a wanted man. And so he gets an Uber to the city of Nob where he meets up with Ahimelech who gives him something to eat. And then Ahimelech also gives him something very, very cool. So 1 Samuel 21, let's look at it, beginning in verse 8, hear the word of the Lord. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Eli, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, if you take that, Take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart. And was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, do you see the man is mad? Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my house? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay, so David is on the run from King Saul. He gets an Uber to the city of Nob, and he didn't find any food. I mean, he didn't have any food. He didn't have any weapons. So Ahimelech gave him some of the holy bread, but he also gave him something else. He gave David the sword of Goliath. So, yes, that Goliath. And David then went to the city of Gath to seek asylum from King Achish. Now, there's nothing really exciting about the city of Gath. Except that Gath was the hometown of Goliath. Yes, that Goliath. So David shows up in Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword in his hand. And he basically says, hey guys, King Saul is hot on my tail. He's going to kill me. Do you all mind if I crash on your couch for a few days? I mean, is David crazy? He shows up in Goliath's hometown, the guy that he killed, with Goliath's sword. Is he crazy? Maybe. But this actually shows us how desperate David was. When Goliath, the guy you killed, when his hometown 
is your best option? You in trouble, son. And apparently the residents of Goth uh, can pick up uh, a radio station coming out of Israel because they tell King Achish that they've heard songs about David on the radio, how he struck down 10,000 soldiers. So apparently David could sing these song lyrics. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 dead soldiers for my heart to find. So those in Gath heard songs about David, how his kill count was at 10,000, and so they locked him up. And the question for David now is, how in the world do I get out of here? How do I break out of jail? Answer, you just let spit run down your beard. And so David started acting like he was crazy. He started putting markings onto the doors of the gates, and then he just let his spit his saliva just run down his beard. He's just slobbering all over the place. And the Gathites put two and two together. This guy killed Goliath, and he has the nerve to show up here with Goliath's sword. And now he's carving words into our doors and letting spit run down his beard. Conclusion, David's crazy. And so he's got to go. So they let David go. And then you fast forward sometime into the future, and David wrote Psalm 34. 1 Samuel 21, as the little prescript you'll find in the heading of your Psalm 34 in your Bibles, Psalm 121 is the background and the inspiration for Psalm 34 that we'll be looking at today. So turn over in your Bibles now to Psalm 34. Here's our big idea, and it's what David wants us to do with Psalm 34, and it's this. Make Jesus large. What do I mean by that, make Jesus large? What does it mean to make Jesus large, to make Jesus big? Well, stay tuned to your radio dial, and I will explain it to you. But until then, Psalm 34, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. So with all that David experienced when he was on the run from King Saul, it's no wonder he starts off this song with blessing the Lord because David just can't keep his mouth shut. He remembered what happened when he was standing before King Achish. So David has to bless Yahweh because Yahweh has been so good to him. But what does it mean to bless the Lord? We were just singing that, bless the Lord. What does that even mean? Answer, to bless the Lord is to take note of who he is. To take note of what he is like. It's to remember his character. It means that you remember his ways. To bless the Lord means that we remember who he is. We take note of his character. It may mean that you just write down all the things that you know about Jesus. You take note of his character, and then you respond in wonder and adoration. To bless the Lord simply means to review gratefully who he is and what he has done for us, and then you respond in worship, in awe, in adoration. And that's why David piles up all these words in the first few verses. Bless, praise, boast, magnify, exalt. David is calling on the church. 
gathered at the sanctuary to join him in blessing and magnifying Yahweh. And that's the goal, isn't it? To magnify the Lord. Not to make a name for ourselves, but for us to exalt his name together. That's what we want as a church. We don't want celebrity pastor culture here. I don't want celebrity pastor culture here. We don't even want to be mainly known for great preaching or great worship or great ministries. We want to be known as the church in town where you will hear about Jesus. Not a church that toots its own horn. Not a church that goes on and on about itself. A church where you will hear about Jesus, where his name is exalted above all others, where we magnify Jesus' name above all, where his reputation draws sinners in. But what does it mean to magnify the Lord? I mean, how do we even do that? The Hebrew word for magnify means to be big, to be great. And so how do we do that? How do we make Jesus large? How do we magnify an infinitely glorious God? How do we make him big? Well, we know from our series on the earlier this year on the undomesticated attributes of God that we can't make God anything, can we? He is, as the Latin phrase reminds us, ah say which means he is from himself. God's aseity, which we looked at, means that he is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. It means that he has life within himself. It means that he has no needs whatsoever. Jesus doesn't need our songs on Sunday morning. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our service, our gifts, nothing. He needs nothing. He's a God of no needs, which is in stark Stark contrast to us because we have all kinds of needs, don't we? So how do we magnify? How do we make big? How do we make great? How do we make large a God who has life in himself and has no needs? Old Testament scholar Alan Ross is very helpful here. He says, but how can one make God great since God is already great? It can be done by extending the reputation of God through praise. When asserting the greatness of God in praise with specific details, the person and the works of the Lord will be magnified in the understanding of the congregation. People may know that God is great, but through praise they will come to appreciate how great God is, and that may be greater than they ever realized. So we don't make God big. We don't make Jesus large. We don't make God anything, do we? But we can increase and make big his reputation among us when we sing. When we sing with specific details about who he is and what he is like, how in his mercy he leads us through the valley of shadow to, was it rivers of joy? I can't remember. Is that right? Something joy. Whatever it is, trampolines of joy, I don't know. He leads us through valleys of sorrow to joy, right? When we sing with specific details about who he is and what he is like, as we sing about God each week, when we gather, as we listen to his word, we learn new things about him. We increase in our understanding of him 
and we are reminded again about who he is. So his character, his reputation actually gets bigger in our eyes. He becomes greater in our eyes. Let me ask you, do you struggle to believe God's promises sometimes? Do you struggle to believe that you are forgiven anybody? Do you struggle to believe that you are clean right now? You are actually clean, pure. Do you struggle to believe that he is sovereign and has a plan as he takes you through suffering in your life? Then you need Jesus to be made large in your life. You need other believers to tell you about Jesus so that he becomes big. You need to come here and sing so that he becomes big, so that you increase in your understanding of him. When we sing and hear his word, his reputation increases and grows among us. It becomes even greater in our thoughts than we realized. And that's what I mean when I say make Jesus large. Is that we would talk about him so that he becomes bigger than our sins in our mind. So that he becomes bigger than our sufferings and our sorrows and the heartache that we are experiencing. Our tagline here at Grace is making disciple, making disciples. You'll see that everywhere. We want to make disciples who know how to make other disciples. And one of the ways and the main way we do that is by making Jesus large, by making Jesus big, by magnifying him. So I think we'll start using our big idea today a lot more here at Grace. So consider it the new tagline to the tagline, the assistant to the regional manager, if you will. This is the new tagline to the tagline. Making disciple, making disciples by making Jesus large. It kind of has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? We can make disciple, making disciples by talking to each other about Jesus, who he is, what he is like, his promises. That's how we make disciples. By making Jesus large in the eyes of others. So let's start being proactive about telling one another about Jesus, making Jesus large in the eyes of others. You could do this through a phone call, email, text message, DMs, just message a friend something about Jesus like this. Hey, I just wanted to remind you that you're forgiven. Jesus can't remember your sins. Would you like to wake up on a Monday morning and get a text from a friend like that? Wouldn't that be great? Or you could message somebody something like this. Hey, God is working all things out for your good today. Or this one, I like this one. God's not mad at you. I need to hear that all the time. Or the angel of the Lord is encamped around you right now. I saw someone on Twitter ask for this very thing on Thursday. She tweeted this. Hey, friends, I've had a rough week. Some really, really low lows. If you could comment with a verse or some words reminding me of the faithfulness of God, not buck up or flattering words. I know my failures too well. I'd like my notifications today to be reminders of him. That's what we want to give each other, reminders of him. And when we do that, we will be making disciple-making disciples because we're making Jesus big in the eyes of others. And who wouldn't thrive in a church family like that? Who couldn't use that kind of Jesus talk? 
And as we make Jesus large, we then get smaller, don't we? Our problems get smaller. Our sufferings get smaller. You see how that works? We get smaller. We become humble. As David says in verse 2, let the humble hear and be glad. Let them hear about Jesus and be glad. So as we extend his reputation among us and we grow in our understanding of him, it creates and fosters a church culture of humility and joy. We actually begin to lose our swagger. We begin to realize that we aren't that big of a deal. And then we start confessing sin. And then we start getting real with one another. And then we start walking in freedom. Who wants to walk in? Who needs more freedom in your life? To just wake up and know that you're forgiven and you're loved and Jesus has got the whole day taken care of and you can just wake up in the morning even though you're old and your back hurts or your ankle hurts when you wake up and you did nothing in the night. It just, that's just how it works. Just prepping you 20s and 30-year-olds what's coming your way, okay? You just go to bed and wake up and you're like, why does my foot hurt? Okay. But when you, even on those days when you wake up and don't know why your foot hurts, you could wake up and be like, <sighs> number one, I'm forgiven of my sin. And number two, Jesus is in control of everything that's going to happen to my life today. So you can wake up and be like, <sighs> and now I've got to deal with my foot. But there's grace for that too. So understand this, blessing the Lord, praising the Lord, boasting in the Lord, magnifying the Lord, exalting the Lord is one of the greatest ways to kill your ego. Sunday morning worship is war. It's the reputation and glory of Jesus killing off our egos. So Sunday morning worship should knock the swagger out of our steps. Sunday morning worship is crucial because it helps us to foster a church culture where we check our egos and our narcissism at the door. And it's a place where Jesus is big. So do you want to learn humility? Do you want to be a humble person? Make sure you're in here each week and sing. It's free therapy. Did you know that? It's free therapy. We should charge y'all. Do you want to be a godly spouse, a godly parent? Show up here every week, sing to Jesus, and watch your ego die in the presence of the Lord as Jesus looms large. And that's what we want every week, for Jesus to loom large. That's what we want for our ministries here, for Awana this year. We want Jesus to loom large. And that's what we need as we suffer, isn't it? It's what we need as we undergo heartbreaking situations As Joe Novenson says, to my friends, I ask one thing in my suffering, make Christ large to me. He's saying, look, when when I'm suffering, I need my friends to do one thing for me, to make Christ large to me. And that's David here. It's why Psalm 34 is a corporate call to worship to those who are gathered at the sanctuary. David knows that the one thing we need when we suffer is to have friends who present Jesus to us as this massive, all-powerful, all-wise, all-sufficient Savior. We need people to remind us of God's character, to remind us of his reputation, to remind us of his promises, of who he is and what he is like. Because if you're like me, you know these things about God, but you forget them. 
So when you are suffering, you need to tell your closest Christian friends two things. Number one, I am suffering. I am hurting. You need to say that. And then number two, you need to tell them, make Christ large to me. When you are suffering heartache and suffering brokenness and suffering sadness and suffering pain, suffering betrayal, suffering sickness, you need to let people know. You need to have someone close in your life or a few friends close in your life that you can go to and say, my heart is breaking. I just want to die. This is too much for me. You need to let someone else know. You cannot do it alone. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you when you suffer is through other people. He's given you other people to help you when you're suffering. And then... After you tell them you're suffering and you're dying and you need help, then you need to tell them, make Christ large to me. Tell me about my Savior again. Talk to me about his sovereignty. Tell me that his grace is sufficient. Remind me that he works all things together for my good. Whisper to me that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Whatever you do, make Christ large to me. And that's why David says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David is saying, let's make Christ large to one another. Let's increase our understanding of the Lord. Let's magnify his reputation among us. Let's sing about his greatness so that our hearts get enlarged. Let's make Yahweh big. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. It's extending his reputation through praise, through preaching, through prayer, through social media, through text messages, making Christ large. Isn't that a beautiful way to explain it? That's how Jesus is magnified among us. His reputation begins to spread among us as we worship him. And then as that happens, it then begins to spread out into our city and beyond. We magnify the Lord, we bless the Lord, and then it spills out into the streets. And, and I love this, and it makes the devil very, very nervous. When we make Jesus large, when we magnify his reputation among our hearts, among one another, it makes the devil very, very nervous. Scott Saul says, when God's children start showing up for each other, the accuser starts to tremble. When you start showing up for your brothers and sisters here at Grace, the devil starts to tremble. He doesn't like that. He doesn't want us coming together and saying, here's my problem. I need help. Would you pray for me? Would you make Jesus big to me? He doesn't want that. He starts to tremble when that happens. What the devil wants is for us to live isolated lives, and that's happened over the last two and a half years, and I'm not going to get on a soapbox about that, okay? But we have been isolated for two plus years, And he has loved that. But when we come together and start telling each other about Jesus, he starts to tremble. Let's be a church that makes Satan tremble when we care for one another. Think of gathering at church as one way to make the devil nervous. Okay? So maybe you don't want to go to church, wake up, I'm kind of tired. Just go to make the devil nervous, okay? If nothing else. Corporate worship becomes an opportunity to show up for your church family. And number one, make Jesus large. And number two, make Satan squirm. That's a, that's a great like little tagline for a church too, isn't it? 
You know, instead of just making disciple making, we want to make Jesus large and we want to make Satan squirm. That might become like our new tagline. Isn't that good? Go to work tomorrow, or not tomorrow, maybe Tuesday, and tell your friends, you know, we had church and we made Jesus large and we made Satan squirm. It was so good. And please understand that David is not being pious or religious when he says in verse 1 that he will bless the Lord at all times. The reason David can say that he will bless the Lord at all times and that praise will continually be in his mouth, not because he's super spiritual, it's because God is always answering David's prayers, always delivering him out of troubles, just like you and me. Listen, for the rest of your life, For the rest of your life, this is what Jesus is going to be doing. Jesus is going to be answering your prayers, blessing you, and delivering you from your troubles. That's on his to-do list. That's why you can say verse 1 along with David and not come across as pious or super spiritual or religious. You can say that praise will always be in your mouth because Jesus will always be answering your prayers and delivering you from your troubles just like he did with David. David prayed and Yahweh answered. Look at verse 4. I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. And so as David writes Psalm 34, he's thinking back to what happened in 1 Samuel 21. Alec Motir imagines David recounting this incident to his friends when it dawns on him that it wasn't his cleverness that got him out of this pickle, it was Yahweh answering David's prayer. So kind of picture David sitting around the fire talking to his friends and saying, I got a table that happened one time with King Achish. Man, I started acting crazy. I spit run down my beard. <laughs> And those suckers let me go. So imagine David telling that story to his friends and then it dawns on him, wait a minute, there's a bigger story here. So here's the way Motir explains it. One does not need much imagination to think what a good story David made of his pretended loopiness and how he fooled his way out of danger and gaff. So think of him recounting his cleverness yet once more when suddenly it came over him that in fact there was a real story hidden inside the good story. A real story of prayer made and prayer answered. Yes, he had played the madman. Yes, he had written up insulting graffiti about Achish on the doors. Yes, he had made his personal behavior unacceptable. But he had also prayed. He had also looked ceaselessly to Yahweh. He had looked, he cried out, he had found his God to be near at hand in the hour of terror. And wasn't that the real story? Wasn't that what he ought to be telling his friends? Not boosting his own cleverness, but boasting and rejoicing confidently in his saving, delivering God. We can't miss that it isn't our giftedness or cleverness or wisdom or our hustle that gets us out of pickles. It's God answering our desperate prayers. David says, I sought the Lord. He answered and delivered me. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard and saved. This is why David piles up words like bless, praise, boast, magnify, exalt. Because he remembers what life was like on the run from King Saul. No food, no weapons, no place to stay. Probably in jail when he started acting crazy. 
This was when he sought the Lord. This was when this poor man cried out to Yahweh. And when David calls himself a poor man, he doesn't mean that he was flat broke. He's thinking about how destitute he was apart from the Lord. He's thinking about how desperate he was. He really needed the Lord. That's the sign of maturity in a disciple right there. How desperate do you feel for Jesus? You want to see a mature Christian in the faith? You will see one when they say, I am absolutely desperate for God every minute. I'm not being super spiritual about it. I feel it in my bones. That's Christian maturity, is realizing that apart from Jesus, you really are nothing. Not just putting that verse on a, a coffee mug in the morning and saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, that's right. No. You feel it in your bones. Apart from him, I can do nothing. That's Christian maturity. Joe Novison says, the more mature we become in Christ, the deeper we will feel our need for Christ. The stronger our faith in Christ becomes, the weaker in ourselves we will feel. The feel of faith is not strength, but dependent weakness. Did you get that? The feel of faith is not strength. It's not like, yes, I can do this. I got this. The feel of faith is dependent weakness. That's not how we typically think of faith, but it's spot on. Faith feels like desperation, perspiration, dependent weakness, not triumph. And that means when you are suffering and being tested and dealing with heartache and sorrow and you feel like you're drowning and you think you might die from the pressure, the feel of faith in that moment is not strength. It's overwhelming weakness. It's desperate dependence. You're not supposed to feel triumphant in those situations. You're supposed to feel overwhelmed and weak and desperate so that you run to Jesus, so that you seek the Lord, so that as a poor man, you cry out to the Lord. And so make the connection here. It's because Yahweh answered, delivered, heard, and saved that David wants to bless, praise, boast, magnify, and exalt Yahweh. Because the Lord intervened, David wants to magnify him. And that's why he says in verse 4, those who look to him are radiant. What does David mean? I think he's saying that those who look to the Lord when they are suffering and they seek him out and they cry out to him just like David did, those are the people whose faces are radiant. When you're trying to handle it yourself, You're carrying the burden. You think you can do it in your own strength. Your face is not radiant. Your face is radiant when you cast all your burdens on the Lord and give it to him and you can go, (sighs) the Hebrew word here for radiant means to shine, to beam, to be radiant. It's, It's a figurative language for joy. So when the Lord answers and delivers and hears and saves, then we are full of joy. Now, David's face in 1 Samuel 21 was distressed, worried, concerned. I mean, he had spit running down his chin. But Yahweh answered. He delivered David. And now, David's face is radiant. Maybe before the spit dried. His face is radiant just like yours when Jesus answers your prayers. But what about when Jesus doesn't answer our prayers right away? Or doesn't answer in the way we want him to. What then? Can our faces be radiant when Jesus doesn't answer the way we want him to? 
To quote Joe Novenson again, he said, Lord, I now know why you often don't answer my requests. You want to be the answer. Let me read that again. Lord, I now know why you often don't answer my requests. You want to be the answer. The real answer to our prayers is God himself. This is why David says that those who look to Jesus are radiant. It's why we can have radiant faces even when God doesn't answer right away. It's because we have learned that the real answer to our prayers is God himself. It's the presence of Jesus. Whether we get delivered or not. It's the nearness of God whether he answers our prayers or not. That is the answer that we really seek. The presence of the Lord. And that's why David says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It's his presence, it's his nearness that is the real answer to prayer, which means that we can go through anything if Jesus is with us. We can go through anything if Jesus is with us. The Hebrew verb here for camps around is a participle. And I tell you that so that you will think that I know everything there is to know about grammar, but I don't. But I know how Hebrew participles work. And it means it's this ongoing action of God, the angel of the Lord, which was how Yahweh appeared to his people when he wanted to specially manifest himself to his people. Ralph Davis says, it's the Lord with working clothes on. Uh, This is how the Lord appears when he especially wants to manifest himself to his people. It's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, it's this ongoing thing. He's camping and camping and camping around his people. He doesn't just drop in for visits. This is an ongoing presence. Jesus is always near his people, and he is near you right now with whatever it is that you are going through. And it was this nearness of Yahweh to David that caused him to say what he says next. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Hebrew word for taste is usually used to describe something that uh, you're tasting food or drinking something. But here it's actually linked with seeing, which is kind of weird, isn't it? We taste the Lord's goodness in our lives when we see him intervene. That's what David is saying. When we cry out as poor men to the Lord and he hears and delivers us, just like he did for David in 1 Samuel 21, that is when we taste and see his goodness. Listen, when you are starving like David and someone feeds you warm bread, and when you need a weapon and someone gives you Obi-Wan Goliath's lightsaber... And when you get out of jail and they've dropped all the charges against you, it is then that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We taste and see that Yahweh is good when we sing, when we bless, praise, boast in, magnify, exalt him. We taste and see that he is good when we pray and he delivers us from all of our fears. We taste and see that he is good when we gaze on him and our faces are radiant. We taste and see that he is good when the angel of the Lord encamps around us and delivers us. We taste and see that he is good when we run to him and take refuge in him. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Radiant faces is what we'll have when we take refuge in him. 
and not in us or in our own strength or our own wisdom. One of the ways that you taste and see that the Lord is good is by looking back over your life and seeing where he delivered you. When you make Jesus large, you taste and see that the Lord is good. When you make Jesus big to other people and you tell them what he has done for you, you are giving them opportunities to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's exactly what David is doing in Psalm 34. He is reviewing how the Lord delivered him from all of his fears. And then by telling others about that, he's giving them opportunities to taste and see that the Lord is good. So tell your story so God gets the glory. Tell your story so that Jesus gets the glory in your life. Not your giftedness and your swagger and your cleverness. That's David in Psalm 34. Tell your story to others so that God gets the glory. Tell your story and make Jesus large. And today we have one of the most tangible ways to taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's here at this table, the Lord's Supper. This meal is proof that God is good. It's proof that he's good to bad people. He sent Jesus to live and die on our behalf. And now he welcomes all sinners with open arms. John Wesley penned these beautiful words in his hymn, Come, sinners, to the gospel feast. Come and partake the gospel feast. Be saved from sin. In Jesus, rest. Oh, taste the goodness of your God and eat his flesh and drink his blood. See him set forth before your eyes that precious bleeding sacrifice. His offered benefits embrace and freely now be saved by grace. Our faces can be radiant as we come to this table. Listen, this is not a funeral. This is not a time to be like, oh, I'm so sinful. I mean, Jesus knows you're sinful. I know you're sinful, okay? The question is, do you know you're sinful? Do you feel that in your bones? The Lord's Supper communion is not supposed to be a funeral. It's not supposed to be a thing where you, like, do I have enough time to go through all the sins in my heart before I take that because I don't want to end up weak, sick, or dead, right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. That's a a passage in, in dealing with relationships, saying discern the body, How are the relationships in the church body? Because in Corinth, they had people who were showing up and eating all the food, getting drunk off the wine, and then when the people who came in late from work, there was nothing left. And Paul was saying, discern the body. You're going to show up and eat all the food and get drunk and then take the Lord's Supper? No wonder some of you are sick and weak and possibly dying. Okay? This is the time to just say, Jesus, there's so much sin in my life. I have no hope but you. And so I come because I need your grace. And I confess my sin and I repent. And I'm just coming to you because you are my everything. Okay, So it's actually a time of celebration to come and celebrate his kindness to us. Yes, to turn from our sins, to repent. We're all about repentance here at Grace. But to come down here and say, Jesus, I have no hope apart from you because I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. And then to celebrate that, that you are forgiven, that you are free. You can come with a radiant face this morning to this table. And our faces can be radiant because, as John Wesley said, he freely offers to us all his benefits. We don't have to work for it. He doesn't say, do a little dance for me and then maybe I'll give you forgiveness. He just says, come. His his benefits are free. 
This table is where God meets us today. His grace comes to us in the Lord's Supper. Here at the table, we enjoy the benefits of being united to Christ. Here we get strength for the journey ahead. Here is where God is. The angel of the Lord, if you will, encamps around the Lord's Supper. Here we see tangible proof that will be shortly confirmed by our taste buds. We get tangible proof that the Lord is good and that if we're trusting in Christ, God's not mad at us and he can't remember our sins. At this table, we make Jesus large. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Jesus, we do come as sinners. It's the only way that we can come. The only thing we have to offer you is our sin. And we turn from it. Help us to hate it. Help us to leave it behind. All of our darling sins and precious idols, we turn from them and we turn to you now, Jesus, and we say, forgive us. And we say, thank you for taking the penalty for our sin upon the cross. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for cleansing us, washing us, making us clean. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you that we can celebrate your grace. We can have radiant faces this morning as we come to this table because of you. We want your name to be big here in this church, Jesus. We want your reputation to increase among us and then we want it to spill out into the streets, spill out into into the central coast, Lord. So help us this morning, get great glory, be magnified as we make you large in this church. In your name we pray, amen.